We are a citizen organized, a citizen run, a citizen funded initiative. We don't have a single large donor. We're doing this all on our own, almost exclusively by volunteers. We want to start a national dialogue. COVID-19 pandemic has been a unprecedented event as far as Canada, the countries in the world are concerned. The fact that in Canada, people are still afraid. It has not been disclosed uh, to the general public the contents of the uh, material. So in that moment, she framed every unvaccinated person, including her guest on the show, as a danger to public safety. What's interesting also is that nobody can name a single real world vaccine success story where COVID rates went down at a nursing home or a funeral home after the vax rollout. You're in a cancer clinic and you feel abused by everybody because they didn't want to know you. They wanted to know your mask. They wanted to make personal contact with your mask and that was the horror of it. How did we get to this point? A nation that is afraid to let its people judge the truth and falsehood in an open market is a nation that is afraid of its people. That's still where we are in this nation, Canada, because no government, no authority wants to inquire into its handling or mishandling of the last three years response to COVID-19. Welcome, everyone. Hi, Laura. Hi. Yeah, hi, Laura. How are you? Ah, is that Sean? Yes. Yes, it is. There you go. That sweet voice that rescued me. <laughs> well, you have a distinctive voice also. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Go and ahead, Zoran, are you on the call? Yes, I am on the call. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, great to be uh, with you tonight. Hello, Zoran. Hello. Hello, everyone. And Michelle, you're on the call. I just heard you. Yes, that is me. It is I. <clears throat> so is Matthew on the call yet? Not sure. And Jay's not on either. Mind you, they can just jump in later. It's interesting. I had uh, I had a TV interview with how many stations are, are they on? Like eight stations or something like that. The show's carried on, and it was about the NCI, and um, so it's kind of a semi-mainstream. They were they're just interested in what the experience was and what happened, and so <clears throat> I didn't know what her questions would be specifically. So I'm just answering with what comes to mind. And it just kind of brought me back to just how special the experience was because of, um, you know, listening to each other's voices again. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> yeah, because I've, I've kind of been out of it. It's funny. It's been over a month now since we were immersed in it. We have a team of people working on the transcripts. And so they're having to watch the videos over and over and over again. And they're actually still living the emotion. So, um, yeah, so it just kind of got me feeling proud that we all shared this common experience and are still sharing it. So I thought that's what's striking out to me. Our, our theme is this is Canada. And I think we were all um, enjoying the videos people were posting on, on Twitter and the like. 
of handing out flyers and printing off flyers at work and putting them out. So I'll just let anyone on chime in. And uh, maybe, Soren, though, if we can just kind of get your thoughts. Yeah, it, um, from my perspective, it was a great uh, experience and uh, opportunity. And I'm grateful for, for that, uh, for the uh, session in the Langley that I attended. Uh, and just that opportunity to, um, you know, say your side of a story from the, I, I consider myself like a common person, Canadian average uh, one uh, that um, had something to say the other side of the uh, sad story of the uh, COVID, um, um, uh, the pandemic uh, response uh, in, in Canada that uh, affected uh, so many negatively, yet uh, they've been ignored and disregarded. So, um, and um, it's just that uh, we need to keep the momentum and uh, just uh, spread spread the, the truth and our side of a story and let the public know. And then we can determine what is uh, what is the true public interest uh, to know the truth or to, to hide the truth. Yeah, well said. Michelle, do you have any comments on that? I, I, I really like you, it's been a while since I've been in it, but also like you, I've been doing interviews and, and people are, I, I think this, I really believe this is the beginning. It's like we had the people who watched the testimony live and the people who watched it in the days following. But I think now it's really, we have this whole body of evidence and it's like this treasure trove. And I think we're just getting started spreading the truth. So, um, Laura, what um, what was your experience like testifying? Well, to be honest, for me, it was <laughs> kind of terrifying. Um, and I'm I I guess the grateful part came a few days later when other funeral directors came forward. That was really gratifying and also really supportive. Um, didn't expect that. I kind of did, but I kind of didn't. You never know. So for me, I, I was, well, there's a few things. Like, I was really surprised that I made it through it. Thanks, Sean. You did that. You have such a soothing, calming, really nice way of questioning people. <laughs> um, but then I also was really grateful, like I said, that other people stepped forward in my profession. I'm not surprised that not that many people will talk about it still, but it's also was kind of liberating because I realized that it didn't really seem to matter what I said anyway. I haven't been sanctioned. I haven't had anybody try to abuse me. I've been really fortunate. Well, I, I just want to say something to you, Laura, because yours is one of the most requested testimonies. I, yeah. A lot of people ask me for your testimony. And I just, sorry, there's something loud happening. But um, what, I, what I wanted to say is that, you know, it was so courageous of you to be the first, you know, to the first to talk about the fibrous plots and that's the thing that people so want the evidence for. They want credible evidence for it. And so 
it did make a difference. Thankfully, it made a positive difference. Well, just ask um, as a housekeeping thing, if everyone can mute themselves, if they're not actually speaking, because we're getting like somebody running the tap or something. And then we're supposed to be retweeting these, right? Yeah. So please retweet them out and let's uh, let's make this a really neat Twitter space. Uh, Matthew, you're on the call finally. Hi, Sean. Hi. Good to be here. Yeah, well, good to have you. We're just um, we're just actually we're able to segue into almost anything under the heading "This is Canada," but. Um, a discussion that started on just kind of what it was like to be a witness at the National Citizens Inquiry and then you know, your thoughts afterwards. Um, well, it, it really was a, a tremendous experience and I'd been, I'd been thinking about it uh, nonstop for months before and had discussed it with my uh, older half-brother when I was visiting in Calgary. And, um, and, so for me, it was it was a personally momentous uh, kind of thing, and and I was so glad that I was able to attend those three days in in Langley. Uh, it's a it was a pretty amazing experience. You, uh, even if you're doing your absolute best to to attempt to sort of maintain an even keel, it's very hard not to weep at uh, some of the stories that were shared there. Um, and so I just uh, incredibly appreciative of all the work that you've done to bring this together. Thanks. And uh, yeah, no, it, it's interesting that uh, everyone that attended, I mean, we all cried at the same time. <clears throat> and I don't think anyone anticipated that either, which that was part of the experience that was so interesting. I, I noticed that uh, JJ Cooey is on as well. Oh, Jay, yeah, good, good to have you on. What, what? Uh, you do a lot of speaking, and I think you had the like coolest Zoom connection. I don't know, you had those special effects. <laughs> and uh, what was it like for you to testify at the National Citizens Inquiry? Oh, we'll we'll circle back to Jay because he's oh, he hasn't right, got a no, microphone you got, yet. You got to call him up as a speaker. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll get him up in a sec. I think. Uh, I think there's just a technical issue there, but we'll get him up. He definitely wins the award for coolest graphics for testimony. Um, we also, I noticed that we have two other witnesses here: Chet Chisholm and Liam Sturgis are both here. Um, well, we should. Uh... How's my voice? Is this okay? Can you hear me? We can yes, hear we can. I'm. Uh, I'm. Uh, and so I apologize for the audio, but um, the the graphics that you guys are ranting about is just um, extremely skilled application of PowerPoint. Everybody that has PowerPoint, all the tricks that I have, and then I have a green screen. So, I mean, it, it's really not that fancy nowadays, um, but if the clever use of the, the movement of things, that's all just PowerPoint. If you, if you know what you want to see, PowerPoint can pretty much make it happen. So I, I don't work for Microsoft. And I'm definitely not definitely not sponsored by but I'm just trying to say that anybody can do what I do. It's just that you have to have the, the vision of what you want to show people as you tell the story. So um Jay, if we were to call you today, 
as a witness. Um, would you have like, is there, are there new developments that you would have added to your testimony if you were testifying now instead of earlier? Um, there might be a few more detailed arguments that I might try to sneak reference to. Um, a lot of that, those references were also kind of lost in the first talk, unless you already knew about those things. Um, right now, I, I feel like the only thing that I would try to get it is a little more succinct presentation about um, the goal of my presentation was to set forth the giant realm of possibility that somehow or another the TV and social media narrative has excluded from from the possible in order to make it really hard for to exercise informed consent. And I think if I, if I could sharpen anything up, it would be that 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 the the idea is to present how few of the very much plausible scientific explanations for what did happen, which include a bunch of lies, uh, are more plausible than the biology that they've put forth for the last three years, almost unwavering. It's in interesting that, you know, the issue of, you know, media and the communications is really resonating like that. Um, <clears throat> our journalist evidence like Rodney Palmer and uh, Marianne Bowak, that's resonated. And it's so it's interesting that you're kind of on a similar theme. Laura, if you were testifying today, instead of, you know, having testified at months before, what uh, would you add anything? That's a really hard question. I was thinking about that when I received your email telling me that was the question of the night. Um, I think I don't, I, I think because I was concerned about the message I was bringing or the, the testimony I was bringing, I probably wasn't as clear as I should be. So I had a little humbling experience. There was a fellow that said, he put this at the end of a video I was, my testimony was featured in. I think it was on rumble he said something about i have odd hand gestures and strange way of speaking so therefore you know you could take me to the bank <laughs> and um i thought wow that means that i really didn't express myself as well as i could have so on a cheerier note i screen snip that and look at it regularly now but um yeah I, I think i just don't express myself maybe as clearly or as well as i i should have but i don't know how you practice for something like that either so <clears throat> Well, and I think actually because you were, you were nervous. There was. Um, you were you were actually afraid of sharing the information when you can be identified as the speaker. So, and actually, so then all of us experiencing you experiencing that, I think was more important than you know a clear presentation. Laura, I would also like to add, though, that your testimony didn't become one of our most sought-after testimonies due to not being impactful in how you presented that information. Like, you did, you did sure. a fantastic job, and, you know, for that reason, I think it, it had the impact that it had, right? And, you know, I, I think people are just going to look to nitpick in any way that they can, but I think it was fantastic. Yeah. I had I had one picker, like one out of a million people, I swear, who said I say right too often. <laughs> um, or I, and, and I think the fact that, you know, they didn't know, but like I was sitting there absolutely terrified. My voice went hoarse. I was 
I thought I was going to be sick, to be honest. So I think, I think it's because I was bringing the physical and other people were bringing like ideas and concepts and freedom. And then I was saying, but this is what's real, right? I mean, those other things are really important and real too. And I believe in all of those as well. But I was the one bringing this actual physical thing. So I think that was more my issue than anything else because I really didn't want to terrify everybody. Um, and, and it is kind of terrifying what I brought, right? So it's that that was hard. And I think that was my, my issue. It wasn't really a fear. It was more a fear for other people's fear, if that makes sense. It does make sense. I just want to add to what um, Garrett and Sean have said. I really think that the fact that you were scared, you know, (laughs) or nervous or, you know, all of that, the fact that you were saying right or moving your hands the way you were made it just that much more compelling and accessible because you were human. You know, that made it. I think that added to it. I don't think it took away. No, no, I don't think that. I think it just, perhaps I could have just been a little more clear on some things. And I'm a little bit combative too, right? So, you know, I mean, and maybe that's, that's me, or maybe it's because I had a focus on, no, 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 I'm a funeral director and embalmer, and you should have other professionals here that are way above what I can tell you, and yet they're not here, right? That was a focus for me, because that's the part that makes me so angry and upset about all this. Not with the NCI, obviously. But with with the whole last three years experience, that's the part that upsets me the most. People aren't honest. The people that should be honest and should be our safeguard are not honest. So, hey, Dawn, you, have your, I, yeah, you had your hand up there. Yeah, thanks, John. I just wanted to, considering, considering, Laura, we haven't heard you, um, you know, talk much about uh, or I haven't heard you much uh, since the since the hearings and since the testimony you gave. Um, can I just ask what your experience has been? Like you went, I, I presume you went straight back to work, and you know you you continued on. Um, can you tell us, you know, what what your experience has been since then? Um, with the with the with all that same evidence, is the same thing still happening? Is it more? Is less is it is has it stopped is it still going I'm I'm in a really different place now in my life so I'm still working I'm actually currently at work and um I'm I work a lot not because of this but because we're low on staff I mean the the number of um you know old dogs like me so to speak uh, a lot of people didn't renew their licenses this year, and I got that from the horse's mouth. Um, and I think they're, you know, they're probably burned out and not happy about COVID. A lot of people sold their businesses and retired, or a lot of people retired that weren't business owners. So you're going to lose managers there too. I think um, as far as, as embalming goes, I don't embalm as often as I used to, which is probably a good thing for me because I started to... F- <sighs> I just couldn't do it anymore. I can do everything else but that fairly comfortably. Um, but it's now it's more I'm spending time with the public and I'm hearing stories where people are just kind of baffled, right? And I'm hearing that once or twice a week now. So that's really hard to sit what? there and say, well, you know, I'm hearing that story fairly routinely now, right? 
Laura, but, what are they baffled about? Uh, they're baffled about why the person that they're there to deal with has passed away. Right. So the so we still have young people that have died that just shouldn't be there. Well, we we're I'm seeing people that all of a sudden maybe they were sick for a few months and then they're gone, right? And they haven't even maybe gone through all their testing or any treatment or you know, whatever it is that their medical doctors and, and professionals have been looking to treat them with or care for them. Um, and, and, you know, the question comes to mind, do, do these doctors know what's going on and they're just kind of picking and choosing? I don't know. Uh, the question is, is there just too many of them and therefore they don't get treatment right away? I don't know. But it sort of feels that way. And, and I won't say that as like, that's the gospel because I don't know. I don't work in the medical field, but I do know that I'm hearing that all the time now and in really strange ways. And like, even some people are like, well, you know, I've got three other friends with the same symptoms and nobody knows what's wrong. And I kind of go, okay. Like it's, it's heartbreaking and it's horrible to watch and it's heartbreaking. But at the same time, is it my responsibility to say the things to these people? No, no, because you know, I'm going to get my hand slapped and just upset them more. So it's, it's a really precarious place to be. Um, it's, it's challenging. Um, I try to take it gracefully and, and treat those people just like I should, which is what I always do, but it's also really sad. Like it's, it's hard to sit through that too. So, you know, when you're at the end of, when you care for people at the end of their life, right, when their life is gone and you're caring for the people that are left behind and they're left baffled and, and they're just kind of shaking their head and they're saying things like, I don't have my partner anymore that I expected to retire with, I expected to go into old age with. And I've had people saying that <laughs> recently, like very recently, extremely recently today. But I've had that for weeks and weeks and weeks now. So um, that's that's really hard. And does it seem, I'm go, sorry, yeah, does no, it okay. seem like, does it seem, I, I think this is probably a common question. I know it's a question that I always ask myself all the time is, you know, is the tide turning yet? You know, like, do we yes. see? Okay. But keep in mind that I work in a, a low compliance area. So there's people in this area that know what I've done. It's really funny because I basically <laughs> kind of went viral and international. And you know how I said at the beginning of my testimony, I'm the best kept secret in bombing. Well, I'm now the best kept secret in testifying. <laughs> um, I, I just, I came back to work. I've done a few interviews here and there, but mostly my, my whole life is consumed with working. So for me, it, I've just come back to work. I think about it every day. Um, the NCI for me was probably the best outlet out there because I had been screaming for months and months and months, like, we've got to stop this and there's something wrong. And well, I started screaming that by April, mid-April of 2020. So <laughs> I was kind of early, I guess, but as far as, as you know, what I was seeing, yeah, I was screaming it and no one was listening. They all just kind of rolled their eyes, kooky Laura, you know, and yet I'm starting to feel like maybe I'm not so kooky, right? I have a question for you, Laura. Sure. I, I First of all, I can't imagine how difficult it is to know what you know and to mm -hmm. see these people being baffled and knowing you can't really say anything 
is it something and and I really don't know your industry but is it something when you find the clots is that something you can or should share with people ethically first rule of embalming what happens between me the deceased and god stays between me and god and the deceased first rule of embalming i've had that rule my whole career um, and the reason I've had that rules is it really my place to tell people what's going on with someone that's died because medically I'm not trained. So I'm not legal to tell them. If I told them that, I would get my hands slapped and potentially lose my career. Okay, I got it. Thank you. And, yeah, that's a rapid fire answer, isn't it? I have uh, <laughs> one final question, Laura, and then you know maybe we sure. can give you a little bit of a break and let others kind of speak as well. Um, recently, there was an embalmer from Alabama, uh, Richard Hirschman, who, yes. who kind of went viral. He's here tonight. Yeah, he's here tonight. Didn't he? Didn't kind of go viral. He saved my life. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, I guess my question was, have had you reached out to him, or have you been in contact? Absolutely. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. No, I talk to Richard fairly fairly frequently. Actually, I mean, we're kind of text buddies. We've had a few phone calls. We email as a group. Um, yeah. No, Richard's testimony when he first came out on the Jane Ruby show was at the lowest part of my life, and I was ready to end it. So he. Um, his testimony, I believe it was January, no, sorry, it was January of 20, Richard will confirm this, I think it was January of 2021, no, 2022, sorry. Um, he, yeah, by seeing that, he saved my life. So I'm, I absolutely adore Richard and not because he saved my life, although thank you, Richard. Uh, it has more to do with he, he changed my perspective on things so that I didn't feel like, um, I didn't feel like the whole population was going to crash and I was going to be one of the last ones left because that was what I didn't want to go through. I don't want to go through a mass exodus. And that's what I was seeing right, every day. So yeah, Richard Hirschman saved my life. God bless you, Richard. And he's here. So you could put him on. You could find him. He's under Richard Hirschman. Yeah, Richard, you could go ahead and request the mic. That was, I think that was one of the things that uh, I was super interested in too, because in your testimony, you had mentioned, you had actually put a call out and you had actually put a call out and you put a Gmail um, out for others. And so did that pan out and did you get, you know, it sounded to me like you had a, you got a working group together and, you know, it kind of, you kind of had some interaction or at least created a support group in your, in your, your network. Yeah. Um, actually in real life, <laughs> that's, that's kind of a funny situation. Um, that email, I wasn't really sure who would respond on the email, and I expected, you know, to get trolls or haters. I got none. Um, instead, what I got was um, some absolutely horrible uh, stories from just average people, or maybe there were some medical people there. I also got requests from around the world for more information from sciencey kind of people. Some pretty, uh, pretty interesting people, like some really good background. Um, but what I what I didn't get was funeral directors. I already had that kind of working group relationship uh, with a handful of funeral directors, and Richard is definitely one of them. Um, but no, funeral directors did not reach out at all, actually. So it was it was more people that really needed to express themselves, and I guess felt that I was um, a good ear or a sounding board or I don't know. But yeah, I responded to every single one of them. That took a long time. Uh, still does. I, I check it still and i'm still getting responses from people that hadn't seen my testimony before and have just recently seen it so that's ongoing but I'm, it's not funeral directors that are reaching out at all 
none, actually. I suspect you may be encountering more of that in the future. As, um, we, as the videos, well, what's happening is the video testimonies are are in post-production right yes. now. And, and so final versions of all the videos will end up going up on Rumble as well as all of the NCI website. And, you know, with the intent that they're rewatched and, and rebroadcast. <laughs> and because your testimony is, is so vivid and so physical, that, that goes a long way, does it not? Well, I, I think I also found that <laughs> this is kind of funny. People were sending me links to copies of my testimony, and some people had chopped it up into sections, and then put a you know a head a header or a title of what the topic was that I was talking about in like a five minute segment or a three minute segment or whatever. So that was kind of interesting. Um, and then apparently, I think my video was also um, bootlegged and <laughs> translated into other languages. Because I, I found it by accident a few times. And then every now and then my friend pops up and says, you're famous again on TikTok. And I'm like, where? I don't know. <laughs> I don't I don't see those things. But every now and then someone sends me a link. I still haven't figured out how to work TikTok. So <laughs> or Twitter for that matter. But uh, yeah, that's that's I think it, it's going to be like a slow roll again. Like it'll just keep looping. Maybe. I don't know. Seems that way. It's kind of strange. It'll continue to live on. It will take on its life. And that was one of the interesting things that Sean had mentioned before, how everyone was, everyone was, you know, making, making new creations out of the content that, that has already been created, right, Sean? Yes. Hi, Laura. This is Teresa. Hi, Teresa. Hi. So, so how, so are you seeing an acceleration? <clears throat> of of people that are dying that are younger like are I, you I, I can say that oh sorry hun yeah no sorry i are like are you still seeing like the like what really resonates in my mind is when you talked about the the, the band-aid still being on the person's arm like is yeah. this are there other weird things that are still occurring right now but just different so I'm seeing things that, and, and it, um, Richard may want to concur or not concur on this, but we've talked about it a little bit. And I'm on the, the occasions that I'm embalming, which are pretty rare, um, I am seeing an escalation of something, if you're an embalmer, called a short circuit. Um, and, and basically that means that the circulatory system is just gone. Like it just, it, it won't last through the embalming. And I'm seeing that routinely. Um, and, and it just means we embalm differently and it takes a lot more time. Uh, I'm seeing, um, yeah, I've seen a few strange things since then. And it's sort of, there's, there's a couple families that flat out said, this is what caused it. Um, but again, you remember I'm in a, a non-compliance rural area, uh, where people are a little more direct, like extremely direct. Um, and then some people aren't, right? There's there's a very mixed population, whereas the previous population I worked with were definitely pro all of this stuff, like bought it lots, lock, stock, and barrel, basically. Um, here, where I am now, that's not that's not close at all. So it, it's it's really divided. Um, you can't really see the division where I'm working. Like when you go down the street, everybody is nice enough, but 
um, you can definitely skip. Like they write it on their vehicles, so <laughs> they they hang it up in their yards. Um, it's very obvious who's who, if that makes sense to you. What, Laura? Could you describe what a short circuit is? Explain well, that. Just it's kind of graphic, but I can. So. If the circulatory system is having issues, right, it's going to malfunction because it's weak. So if it's going to malfunction, it's probably going to malfunction somewhere close to the heart or in the in the in the body cavity, like where your organs are. So if the if it short circuits, what happens is the embalming fluid starts to leak out in a really a large amount of way into the body cavity and you're not getting embalming fluid anywhere because it's literally you're pumping it in and it's leaking out inside the body. So what happens is you don't get an embalming and you end up with a bit of a mess. And so what you have to do is change your plan for the embalming and do something called a multipoint, which means instead of embalming from one part of the body. So during my testimony, I talked about embalming from the carotid artery on the right side, which is just above the heart and in between the head and the heart, right? So instead, what you would do is raise a whole bunch of vessels, like each arm, each leg, uh, the other carotid as well on the other side. Um, and then what you're trying to do is have the embalming complete and finished with, um, without having to use the circulatory system portion that's broken, which, I, like I said, is generally in your body cavity. So it's a lot more work and it's a lot trickier and it requires, I mean, if you, if you really want to be thorough, it would also inquire, require other versions of, of embalming as well that don't use the embalming machine. So they're a lot more time consuming and tricky and their effectiveness is based on your technique, so to speak. And so is that, is that a typical thing that you would see in, in a particular demographic, like a senior or yeah, so if you're if you're thinking about the population that I care for now, we're looking at a 50-50 uptake, right? Well, I would say there's a 50-50 opportunity for that to happen. Whereas it wasn't like that before. So my last, you know, my last question would be are we seeing are we seeing the the events from your testimony is any of that subsiding overall? Yes and yeah. no. Because you can't prove it, right? Okay, I'm just going to give you a real good example. My own mother died yesterday morning. Oh, my and... No, it's so fine. Sorry. I'm okay. No, it's fine. I don't want... No, it's that's not what I'm talking about. But, you know, you think about me, and I'm the one that stood up and said, hey, you know, this is no good, right? And um, her story is kind of classic of what we're seeing. So we're seeing things like people are finding out that they have, like, a big disease, like cancer. Right. And then within a month or so, two weeks, they're gone. They haven't even made it to cancer treatment or they haven't made it through testing or surgery or whatever would normally be done for someone that's being treated for cancer. So it's it's rapid cancer. They're calling it turbo cancer, right? Dr. Ryan Cole mm -hmm. calls it turbo cancer. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. seeing I'm seeing weird things like that, or I'm seeing people that just don't feel well. They go to the doctor, they say, you know, I'm really not feeling well. They kind of have some strange breathing issues and maybe some other issues and then they're gone within a couple months and nobody has figured out what's wrong and they're young they're in their 60s right i'm seeing the heart issues in their 60s so 
you know, these are people that have partners that are saying to me, you know, I, I, I don't understand what's going on and I'm going to miss my partner because they expected to retire and have a life with those people after work. Right. And it's really hard to face that because I look at these partners and I think, yeah, you know, you're, you're going to miss out on what you expected, anticipated to be a happy ending to your life, right? Comfortable, happy, have a house, renovating, built a new house. I mean, I've heard it all that way. Um, move to the cottage. That's a common one. Um, and expected to travel, enjoy <laughs> each other's company, love the grandchildren, you know, all that kind of stuff, spoil the grandchildren, which is great. And instead they're, they're left partnerless. So every time I, I hear this, all that goes through my mind is like, one swan on a pond as opposed to two, right? Because swans mate for life. And I'm seeing the mate that's left behind a lot. Hmm. Thanks for sharing all that, Laura. And I'm yeah, so sorry. sorry. I'm so sorry about your No, 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 no. I knew I knew this was no, I knew this was coming. I you know, in my family I, I knew this was coming. I knew that the potential was there. I've known for a good three years and um it just happened to happen, right? So I'm, I'm okay. I just, I think, because I, I told myself like two and a half years ago when I started to really see problems, two and a half, no, wait, sorry, year and a half to two years ago, when I first saw like the first big problem, right? The real obvious one, I said to myself and I internalized it, get used to it. Because if you can't, I can't see death every day and not say get used to it so that I can tolerate it so I can get through it and help people. So that's that's my own I think that's my own defense or my own self-protection. So I'm okay. That makes sense. Yeah, you've, you had, have to, to. you've had to adapt, haven't you? Yep. Yeah. yep. So I guess I'm just going to consider myself more of a witness at this point. <laughs> Aptly named. So what Aptly, is the uh, yes. So what is the future then for you? So what's what's next for you? How will you well, go forward now? I think um <clears throat> I think I could I could look towards um th there's some really great programs out there for grief recovery and I think there's going to be a heavy need for that. So that's a that's a possible outlet. Um I do I am a certified funeral celebrant. I took the course for that many years ago. That's something that may be more of a focus for people. It really just depends on what happens. And we don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. I know we have an escalation of death right now, but that doesn't mean that that's going to continue. I can't prove that. You know, I don't know. Right. I, I always think of like a business plan, worst case scenario, best case scenario, what likely will happen in between. Right. And I'm trying to hope for like best case scenario. That's, and I've been, I've been sending that out to the universe for a long time now. So best case scenario, right? Can we have that one? So we'll see what happens. But I know that I have skills that, you know, may be needed that are, that are associated with death and death care. We'll see what happens. I would say that, I would say that likely, I, I think you wouldn't be alone if... Mm -hmm you were to talk about how the last three years has fundamentally changed you. 
like I know I, I know I myself I've been fundamentally changed by the events of the last three years you know as just evidenced by the fact that I'm here now doing this <laughs> and, I, I've heard so many people say to me like you were built for this and I'm like no I wasn't built for this I was created I was created for this and not by choice. I mean, nobody chooses to be created for anything, right? Um, but I think it was more, uh, my grandfather made me hyper-conscious to the human condition and to tyranny. Um, and he did that from the time I was a toddler. So that was part of it. My father continued that education um, and was very clear about rights and making sure that you keep the government small and out of your life as much as possible. And when they get in your face, you kind of you know, talk to them, right? <laughs> um, so I, I was, yeah, I, I was brought up in an old-fashioned way that's not common in people my age, but facing reality, telling the truth, you know, all those kind of things that nobody really thinks about as much anymore. Um, I guess it might serve me well later. I don't know. I've had coworkers that just like me, we're going to say no, but they, they, they caved and they just shake their head. I have, I have one that says it to me all the time. I can't believe how strong you are. I can't believe the rod you have up your back. And like, to me, I don't see myself as strong. I don't see a rod up my back. I just see someone that said, um, no, these are my rights. And no, thank you. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, sorry, Don. I was just gonna, I was just gonna see if we could get Zorbin involved in the conversation. I was going to ask him kind of how he thinks Canada has changed. We've got Laura kind of speaking about not really people waking up yet and uh, not a whole lot of change. And I'm just wondering what you're seeing. Right. Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll maybe add to the conversation and, and for everyone to kind of discuss is the, um, the amount of fear that um, was surrounding all the people and and people around me and uh and and i'm I, i'm speaking from the observational and, and a personal experience uh and, and when i say fear it's it's and it mostly from the you know people from the professional side um including the um my family doctor i i know the question was you know what uh, would i uh, say if i had opportunity or what can i add to my testimony i didn't have the opportunity to say what happened with uh, with our family doctor uh and maybe just to on on to lean on a jj's uh, uh about the informed consent because uh, both my wife and I, uh, uh, as I mentioned in my testimony, um, recovered from Delta variant. And uh, we, uh, even before that, we, we had serious reservation about the uh, mRNA vaccine and the technology and knowing that there is no, no long-term uh, studies about the uh, uh, impacts of the vaccination. But when, uh, when we recovered from, from COVID, uh, we tried and I tried to get the uh, um, a, a opinion from uh, my family doctor about the um, um, a need for additional vaccination. And, and the simple question, why would I have to use a technology uh, that would generate mo more antibodies into, uh, into something that uh, I already uh, responded to? And obviously, I, I created some antibodies through that. And uh, after 
many different attempts to uh, and and sharing actually on on uh, with my family doctor the information uh, about different studies that I've seen were, that question the um, the necessity of uh, vaccinated people uh, vaccinating people who recovered from COVID. Uh, I couldn't get a response, but I was persistent and. Uh, uh, that was through months of uh, between Sebre- uh, September of 2021 and the uh, December of 2021. And then all of a sudden in January, just before I'm going to be put on leave without pay by my employer uh, and, and by denying the exemption request, I got a phone call from my uh, family doctor. And uh, he, uh, it, was, it wasn't a long conversation. It was just a couple of minutes where he said, um, I'm, I'm sorry, Zoran, I cannot help you. And uh, if, if I try to put anything, I, I am putting my license in a danger and may, may, I may lose my job. And, and you know, again, you, you're trying to get some uh, uh, opinion. And I, uh, I can understand that not, not every doctor has the expertise in, in a vaccination. But then, then um, it, it's just the amount of fear for people to speak and to speak their mind although their profession is obliging them to, to speak uh, their mind and, and act with integrity, uh, they succumb to that atmosphere, which is um, unbelievable. Um, another fact that I perhaps mentioned in my testimony is that um, the colleagues with whom I was so good at work um, couldn't find the courage to phone me at home and, and uh, ask as a human being, you know how are you doing? Uh, and uh, not to speak about the employer, because we I knew that who am I dealing with in terms of uh, a hierarchy in in a, being the provincial government employee. Um, not that I expected from the employer a, a phone call, but at least to to speak on a personal level as a human being, uh, as an employee who contributed over twenty five years for serving the public. Uh, um, to to follow up and say, hey, you're on a leave without pay, you're without income. Um, is there anything we can help you with? Um, it's just that amount of fear. Another example, I tell you, I have so many different stories to say, and I don't want to take too much time. Um, when we moved to Canada in, back in 1994, uh, we landed in uh, Fredericton, New Brunswick. And uh, through some good uh, Canadians who helped us settle um, they connected us uh, with uh, with the journalists who wanted to make a story about the immigrants. It was a Mother's Day, and uh, they came to our uh, um, little apartment and, and did the interview. And uh, um, uh, speaking about the our, our uh, experience uh, um, living through two and a half years uh, uh, in in a war in in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and um, um, when when I was placed on on uh, leave without pay and uh, looking at the freedom convoy and everything what was going on in Canada, I um, I tried to contact the uh, um, uh, newspaper in in Fredericton, uh, Daily Gleaner, and try try to find a journalist perhaps who who made that kind of a story to begin with, and uh, and I offered them if they're willing to follow uh, to do the follow up interview and ask me what do I think. Uh, um, about the life in Canada and my experience 25 years later or 26. Um, and uh, there was no response. 
but I was persistent again and, and asked, you know, uh, if I get uh, someone from, from a daily gleaner and the journalist actually responded and, and uh, asked me what would I like to, to, to speak about. And, uh, and, and I kind of outlined different things and I said what ha happened to us and, and I've never heard back. So that aspect of, of a fear and, and exploiting that fear to, to wedge Canadians. And uh, that is something that um, I'm pretty sure, you know, in, in times to come, a psychologist uh, will, uh, will write books about what happened to Canada and Canadians. So That's a really good I'll take. There. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would follow that up, Michelle, but go ahead. No, it's just, yeah, I would have too. It's, it's a great idea to follow up with, especially given what parallels do you see in your experience in Bosnia, Herzegovina and, and currently in Canada? Well, one, one thing that uh, um, I shared with, uh, with uh, many around me is the, the fact that uh, actually Bosnia and Herzegovina was the first country in Europe where a single uh, uh, one lawyer took upon himself to the moment he heard one of the ministers uh, um, sharing the idea of in, introducing vaccine passports, um, challenge uh, that idea uh, preemptively uh, um, and, and uh, challenge uh, with, uh, uh, by submitting at the uh, uh, Supreme Court uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina constitutionality of uh, such decision. And, and, and uh, you know, whether you're surprised or not, constitutional court uh, that consists of, of the, um, not only the uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina lawyers, but also the three international lawyers who are appointed by, because as you know, the Bosnia and Herzegovina is under protectorate at the moment, and it's, it's not a free country. Those lawyers um, uh, made a ruling that the uh, any vaccine pass or or mandate would be unconstitutional, and um, uh, I have to say, despite of all the difficulties and and you know uh, um, uh, rebuilding that country and rebuilding the trust between the three nations and three uh, uh, major religions in there, um, they they're united in one thing: is that they can they can. Uh, recognize when the government is trying to exploit and, and implement some form of a tyranny and use it for the sinister way, regardless of on which side you are. And um, to me, that's, that's a story that uh, uh, didn't get too much attention in, in, uh, in Europe or, or in the media. But as far as I know, that was the first case in, in the world. Uh, wow! And from that, <laughs> from that perspective, Zoran, when what what year did you come to Canada? I I came to Canada in 1994, and okay. and the destruction of the former Yugoslavia started in 1991. Gradually, from the war in Slovenia, then in Croatia, and then eventually came to Bosnia and Herzegovina in 1992 or so. And so, how did you see Canada back then, before you came, and then how do you see it now, and what's the contrast? Yeah. Quite frankly, I didn't know much about Canada other than it's a, it's a large country and, and uh, vast land and lots of forests. And, you know, myself being in the forestry and with a forestry background, um, that was one of the options. But uh, when, when I wanted to distance myself from the war, um, I didn't want to stay in Europe because I know that would be close to home. 
and uh, the options were um, to apply for a visa in Australia. Australia, um, it was it wasn't as appealing. So the Canada was the country too, and uh, I couldn't say much about the values other than that Canada was well respected at the time in in the world and peacekeepers and neutrality and that sort of thing. And uh, when I moved uh, first uh, to Canada in Fredericton, well, they asked me, you know, where would I like to, after several unsuccessful attempts to obtain the visa, um, I, I got called to, uh, um, uh, for the conversation in the embassy, and, and we did, and I told them that I have no family here in Canada, and wherever they send me, just send, don't send me in a big city. I, I want to work in the forestry and continue with my profession. So one of the first things when we landed in New Brunswick, actually, within first couple of weeks, uh, they gave me the Charter of Rights and Freedom. And in reading that document, and I said, wow, what a country I came to where the human rights and the rights of, of citizens are, are respected and enshrined in the Constitution. To be so disappointed after all that that piece of a paper is more or less worthless now that you're trying to argue, but the government has the ultimate, whatever the section one is, and overwrite all these rights for not a right reason. I can understand for the right reason, but I definitely can't see that pandemic it was right reason to do so. And and they grow grossly overreach that. And yet there are people who are in, in, in a power and, and not in a power who are trying to defend that overreach, which despite of the ample of evidence that uh, they overstepped. So that, that's the greatest disappointment, to be honest with you, that after years of enjoying that um, uh, overall the, the law, order, and good governance to be um, uh, subject of such an oppressive, uh, and I call it systemic oppression. You know, when, when someone puts you on a leave without pay and uh, deprive you of the ability to earn for a living, and uh, then you seek the social assistance by turning, and they turn you down by not giving you the employment insurance and the insurance that you paid into uh, over two decades. I, you know, there's no better word but then to say that that's a systemic oppression. And, and to have the human rights commissioners not to uh, uh, voice uh, um, their... Uh, their concerns, at least, you know, um, uh, attorney generals who are there to up, uphold the uh, rule of law. We've seen, you know, uh, many good examples in the United States. At least they have the diversity and their attorney generals are involved in the court cases. What, what's the role of the attorney general? If someone can explain it in, in Canada. It's, um, I, and, I can find in real quick if you want. Yeah, and, and I was going to just add that Canada is becoming more of a country, not a rule of law, but a rule by law. And that's the biggest concern for me. And uh, honestly, uh, there is a limit for me. I'm still, you know, Bosnian citizens, and uh, I, 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 cannot, I cannot endure to be treated as a second-class citizen in, in, in a country here. But I'm determined to fight and continue this fight because Canada deserves the Canada that I know. That's what I want to. Um, I have a daughter who is 30 years old, and and she is she lives in Vancouver, and uh, I don't want her to live in a Canada that uh, that we are creating now. 
I, uh, I'm struck by so many things that you've said, rule of law versus rule by law. That's a really powerful distinction. Also, the systemic oppression that you talked about. I, my experience has been from the convoy to the NCI, that there's so many people who came from countries with systemic oppression who saw things before the rest of us. Was there something that you saw um, that that tweaked you, that you saw something was off before um, what happened to you with your job and the, the vaccine mandates? And um, I, I've, um, I cannot give a, a specific example, but I could have seen that the, the in generally, you know, you observe on the face of the people, you know, you, you've seen the homelessness, you, you've seen all these different things that are surrounding you and, and you cannot be immune with, uh, with what you see. But I, I can't give you in, in terms of the um, rule of law versus rule by law is um, I can tell you that um, it, uh, it used to be um, uh, back in, you know, 2000. And so when I started with the provincial government, if someone wants to speak with the forest professional, you just phone the district office and, and, and you talk with them. And, they're, they're, you know, as a professional, I should be free to, to speak to, about what I see and, and what I think is uh, going on in the forestry. And then uh, the liberals came uh, back in, you know, uh, to my recollection, it was uh, maybe in 2002 or three, they won, they, they won election in, in British Columbia here. And the thing started to change and, and to, start to, to change for the worse. And, and uh, they uh, first they slapped the public service, but not, that's not the point. Um, the point was that you were not able as a member of the public to phone the office anymore. You have to go through the a centralized system and and put your questions forward in Victoria somewhere and 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 put your questions in, in, in written questions. And then it will take some time for a government to find uh, some professional, perhaps not exactly the same that they were asking for, perhaps, uh, and and provide the answers. So to me, that that was uh, that was. Uh, a total control, and that was the first sign that uh, um, we're getting into a, a form of a society where you're not going to be able to freely speak, regardless whether you're ordinary citizens or or you are a professional. And and as I said in the introduction, you know, as a member of a of a professional association, we have a duty. We we owe that to the public to speak the truth when we see it, regardless of what. Um, what the uh, employer perhaps uh, may ask from you. And, and one thing that, you know, I, I would say through, um, throughout this, like with pandemic, it definitely, I, I, I could have seen that, that um, the easiest to um, uh, manipulate people is if you um, instill the fear. And that was experience from, you know, going into uh, uh, that civil war in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina too, that all sides would exploit that kind of fear in terms of um, what, what's going to happen and what will transpire that eventually did transpire, um, is the, um, the fact that the, in the communication and going into a pandemic, there was that tremendous amount of, of uh, um, trying to not to speak uh, through it, but you know, intelligent people can read between the lines, and and uh, 
if you don't rely only on the mass media, you can find the information if you want. Uh, uh, I think that's the point. But but when when I put the exemption request, um, I um, outlined so many different uh, concerns with with the policy, with the coercive nature of that policy in terms of because if you don't have to convince someone if if the product is good, usually people will experience themselves and fine. But when I uh, when I've seen the stories on on a radio, even. Here they reported in the camels in, in one of the local bars they put uh, they, once after they instituted the uh, vaccine pass all the patrons and, and visitors um, had the have been vaccinated and every single one um, well, got infected somewhat you know super spreader or what and they all of them have been vaccinated and they got vaccine pass so uh, it, that questions the intelligence of, about the effectiveness of the vaccine let you know live live for a moment the safety aspect of the vaccine but the effectiveness everyone knew it's not effective and yet employer wants to compel you to to get something that is not effective that that to me you know uh, again it's it, it's a testament but point that i wanted to say is that the employer and uh, in in all of the responses they remind uh, uh those who did not agree with the policy is that we we need to maintain the respect and professionalism in our uh workplace but but that we owe the duty and that we committed to the provincial governments uh, uh, by signing the oath to the, that we will put the public interest ahead of our personal interest. And that was to me like, you know, the, the threshold, like what is that personal interest that I'm putting forward? Uh, and and what, is, what is that public interest that they want me to uh, compromise my bodily integrity? Uh, because that, you know that for me that was a red line. The principles of, of decision making on my body taken by the government, I just couldn't, I just couldn't accept that, and that was the red line. Yeah, I think that was a line for many people. When you said that, uh, you know, Canada, that you're you're fighting and Canada's worth fighting for, and what is it, given that our our topic is this is Canada, <laughs> that can that can kind of cut both ways but what is it you see is required or how are you fighting what do you what do you think is needed in order to create the canada that we that we want right well there, there are two avenues for the fight we, we know that the preferred one is through the uh, uh institutions and through a parliament through elections and um and but to to do to see the change you, you need to have uh, those uh, carriers of change, and you need to recognize them in in a, in the parties that um, that uh, will put in their platform uh, um, that will defend those freedoms, um, and uh, that's that's one way of uh, seeing the change and 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 the you know a, a pu- public making a pressure on on their uh, uh, political representatives on on the MPs or members of parliament and and whether it's on the provincial level or, or on, on the federal level but we've seen that that's that's a very slow change the other ones is on the street and and uh and the obvious example of what happened with with the street is the freedom convoy when when the people who are not happy with the with the policies and and the pandemic response uh, wanted to um, um, their voice to be heard, and and uh, because they've been ignored uh, through mass media and with with their government and with the government whose prime minister 
and and the cabinet uh, sent such a divisive and and horrible messages uh, are in the power and not held being held accountable. People go on the street. Uh, but we've seen what, what happened with the Freedom Convoy. That was a rate of hope and and uh, the Canada response to and how they've been painted is just uh, uh, remind me of, of, of most oppressive regime in in, uh, in a Soviet bloc. Um, uh, I know uh, Yugoslavia was uh, somewhat uh, a buffer between East and West and we, we enjoyed to a degree some freedoms that we were envy of the Soviet bloc countries uh, when it comes to the personal freedoms. But we still uh, were living under one party system and, and, uh, and uh, but it was better than, than um, on a Soviet bloc. So I, I don't know. Uh, I wish I have that uh, um, magic answer. It will take some time. Um, well, we've I been think... indoctrinated for for a number of decades. It didn't start from yesterday, and to change that, it will take decades. But it will take decades uh, of of having independent media, uh, of uh, of a good education, not indoctrination, and um, and to to raise the generations who can uh, critically think. Uh, not not to disrespect the younger generations, but there's there is such an absence. Uh, not only young generations who are carriers of of the change and should be, but we don't see them. You know, they rally them about the climate change, unfortunately. And um, and but the impotence of the intelligentsia and, and academics it's just staggering. It's it's mind blowing for me. It's uh, you bring up a couple of. Uh, great point. So first, uh, about taking to the streets. Um, I think that uh, sorry, so I can't good. hear you. There's something. Marie, Michelle. Okay, Michelle uh, is having a. A little bit of a technical difficulty there. Michelle, I'm just going to drop you down to the listener and then I'll bring you back up, okay? Um, while that's happening, actually, I've got uh, a little bit of a segue. Rip. Matthew has to say about uh, Zorin. Actually, yeah, yeah I, I was going to say I can, the same thing. If I can just add, um, you know, how do you fight this and, and how, do you, how do you influence the change? Um, I tried with our uh, my uh, my const I'm constituent of the of the uh, um, Todd Stone, who is uh, MP here in in uh, in the Kamloops. I have written uh, a minimum four emails um, requesting a meeting, uh, follow up with the phone calls to his office, and uh, uh, no response. And it's just uh, Todd is too busy and and like. You know, I'm I'm insignificant, and and my cause is not worthy. Uh, the fact that uh, both me and my wife left, you know, uh, were terminated the same day and 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 lost all income. Um, it wasn't a concern for my constituents. So, how do you push through and and get that through the um, institutions? I, I don't I don't have the answer. But that's just illustrates. And... Okay, can. This is something that, yeah, this was related to when I was looking. When I was looking back at, at Dr. Cockle's testimony. He, you know, the, all of these concepts keep turning up. You know, you had mentioned that when you came to Canada, you were shown the Charter of Rights, 
and we watched we all watched as the charter was ignored as and and it looked as though every single aspect of the bureaucracy and the administrative state all collectively immediately defied any sort of um contrary narrative everyone everyone took a uniform stance that this was going to be the only way and you know like going back to the vancouver testimony you know dr cockle talked at length about this and you know your his testimony is the intersection of public good and conflicts of interest and so my question for that is this is Canada. My question is, is this Canada now? Is this what we have now where we have where no one is is willing to to follow the rules, follow the laws as they're written? I mean, Sean was mentioning about was going to talk about, you know, the attorney general. And, you know, we talk about all of these legal aspects. And tomorrow night, there's going to be a roundtable with, you know, with lawyers live stream on Rumble. But this is my question, you know, for Matthew is. You know, like, is is this what are we what's going on with with our with our with our public good? <laughs> and do we have are we are we without anyone in Canada who's willing to uphold the laws as they're written? Or will everyone just continue to just ignore the laws and just decide that they want to go in the favor of, you know, fascist agreement with pharmaceutical and whatever? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great question. And Zoran uh, raised so many uh, incredible points. Um, I think we don't just have a problem with uh, with impotent academics. We also have a problem with the judiciary being being unwilling to um, being unwilling to actually take a stand on issues that they know are wrong. Um, one thing that I was that I was reminded of during Zorn's testimony um, was something that that Leighton Gray said in his own testimony, and that's that in cross examination, Dina Hinshaw revealed that given unprecedented power uh, in a public health emergency uh, office within Alberta, she was somehow taking instruction from political government representatives. But one thing that seems clear in this is that the provincial governments are taking instruction from elsewhere. Uh, we don't, in BC, we've got the Health Professions and Occupations Act. It doesn't look like something that's been prepared on the ground. It looks like something that's been drawn up at a global level and then fed down the food chain through the provincial government. And one of the things that we're seeing now as, as more and more evidence comes out of malfeasance throughout the, throughout the pandemic or the declared pandemic, we're seeing people completely disappointed with public institutions and with government, and they're able to point fingers at elected representatives and appointed uh, officials in government positions. But, and so what's happening is we're saying government is a problem. And I think that one of the things we're, we're forgetting very often is that government is a problem because it has been uh, captured by corporate power. And so very often there's a move to sort of 
get rid of things like even public health. People are saying, people are calling out for a parallel private health system in BC. But if you're, if you're BlackRock or Vanguard, it's going to be a lot easier to swallow up some private health institution than it is going to be to deal with questions of legal sovereignty. And with, so this, this whole idea that, well, the government is to blame, this is true, but they've been leveraged by corporate, by corporate elements. And I think that, that the people who are designing the strategy that we're dealing with, they're playing a long game and they're not just, they're, they're able to, to play on many sides. So if as a result of the pushback from advocacy groups, if they're able to make a case that private healthcare would be better, they'll go with that. They will, they'll be behind that. And I think that one of the things that all of us, even though we might have specialties where we're, we're looking at one particular problem, we have to remember things that, that people like Klaus Schwab say when they say things like, we're dealing with polycrises. Well, they're creating polycrises and they're waging a war on the people that the, their main objective is control. And what's in the way is the rule of the people, which is democracy. Um, and so you create a war on multiple fronts against the rule of the people and you claw away their rights and freedoms. And if you're really successful, you can get them fighting amongst themselves and asking for each other's rights to be further limited. And if you were in one of these think tanks and focus groups, and you're a young hotshot working for these, these uh, corporate bodies, you'd come up with all kinds of wonderful traps to get advocacy groups to to resist in ways that actually serve a corporate agenda. And I think that, I think that maybe uh, Dr. Cooey can speak to this because he's someone who has looked at, at the possibility that there are layers and layers of deception at work. And I mean, not only in, in his testimony in relation to infectious clones uh, and the likelihood of that being the sort of the basis uh, upon which the PCR confirmed the declared pandemic, but also uh, his comments elsewhere on the use of AI as a kind of plausible scapegoat um, to take responsibility for decisions made at a corporate level or a military level by individuals for 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 reasons we might guess at, but if you transfer it, it's almost like the Wizard of Oz. You've got the Wizard of Oz is behind the curtain. Well, we could call the curtain AI. We could call the curtain a lot of things. The one thing that, that they want is not to be held responsible as they dismantle all of the ways in which democracies maintain uh, direct participatory control in the hands of the people. All right, thanks. That was a bit long-winded. Matt, you need your own podcast. Sure, sure. <laughs>
Thanks. Jay Kui, what did you what did you have? To, what was your answer for that? Um, well, I gotta say, I I have been um, over the past three years, kind of slowly awakening to this idea that um, what Noam Chomsky said quite a long time ago is probably true, and that is that um, in order to control people, a very effective means of doing it is to limit the the breadth and depth of a discourse to to the safe zone and then control a very vigorous debate within that safe zone. And I think we see a lot of examples of that. And one of the the things that the last speaker brought up was AI as as a very similar kind of potential mythology. So in a very similar similar way that they've over the last fifteen or twenty years built up this mythology about the potential of pandemics emerging from bat caves and from laboratories. Um, they've also, quite frankly, been building up this this mythology about an eventuality that AI will come to take over and, and launch nuclear missiles to get rid of all of the humans and take over the world a lot like Terminator. And it shouldn't be it shouldn't be dismissed that as many movies as there were about pandemic zombie viruses, there were also as many movies about computers taking over the world, probably starting with the, the, the movie War Games back in the 80s. And in that movie, the computer figures out that it can't win a nuclear war by playing millions of games of, of tic-tac-toe against itself. And I think what they've done here in AI is uh, created a scenario, especially within the secret meetings of governments around the world, these models are capable of making useful predictions about the future. They can make useful predictions about pandemic potential and the fact that there's our models say that there's 1.7 million viruses poised to emerge in the next 10 years. That's one of the things that EcoHealth Alliance said with their models. They made models about how many million people were going to die if we didn't lock down. And they've made predictive models about how AI is eventually going to become, and perhaps it's already out of our control. And I, this kind of exaggeration can be seen really across the board. And we have to become acutely aware that although maybe many people in government and the bureaucracies of government aren't aware of these exaggerations, um, it has gotten to the stage now where the exaggerations have become dangerous to our sovereignty. And it's no longer just people making some extra profit or insider trading that doesn't really hurt that many people. We're talking about actually the Western, Western civilization as we understand it being fundamentally inverted. And, and we've really got to wake up to this fact quickly um, because they're going to keep on bluffing. Um, and keep on offering us safety and convenience, safety and convenience, as long as we keep taking it based on their scary stories. Over. It's a very interesting uh, concept, Jay. And, you know, going back to Noam Chomsky, I know he, he spoke a lot about manufactured consent and especially how that relates to the media. And I think we have seen over the past three years that in, in full force, you know, going forward, and like you said, with the, the predictive modeling and AI, you know, I, I definitely think that we are 
experiencing the outcomes and the results of what manufactured consent looks like. It's, I'm curious um, from both uh, and, and um, Matthew, your thoughts on institutions. I want to go back to something Zoran said, but also you're talking about Noam Chomsky and who completely bought into the narrative, who was for uh, separating the unvaccinated um, <laughs> despite <laughs> manufactured consent, um, or maybe because of, I don't know. Um, but in the film Pandemic 3, The Great Awakening, the theory is that because so many intelligent, educated people bought into the, the mainstream narrative, that it's because, um, institute, because people who have spent a lot of time in institutions have been more indoctrinated than other people. I'd like to know your thoughts on that. Um, I think to me, the the main point here and the thing you can underestimate is how many of these people in public facing professional positions or in, let's say, crucial positions within governmental infrastructure were briefed very early on that this was a national security priority with the potential to kill millions. And at that stage, there's very few people who are going to risk their professional career when they are in a privileged meeting before anybody else hears about it. They're being told things that they're told one thing, and then you can't tell everybody at home this. You got We're going to tell you guys this stuff, but we want you to give this other message to the people at home because it's that dangerous. These people were coerced and and psychologically abused in a way that we can't we shouldn't really underestimate. We're talking about entire movie sets, all the producers in Hollywood deciding that they were just basically not going to have anybody on set that wasn't vaccinated except for them. We had businesses making these decisions. We had professional teams making these decisions. And they were all forced or coerced into doing it under the pretense that we don't know for sure how bad this is going to be. And we don't, sitting here on this Twitter space, we don't know how aggressive they were. We don't know what language they use. We don't know, for example, if they didn't say, we don't know if the Chinese are going to release many viruses. Maybe this is the first one. Maybe there's many companies that told any story they wanted to behind the scenes and then told them, but you can't tell anybody this. And I, I am almost certain that unlike any other kind of governmental operation with any sort of precedent in the past, they pulled out all, and I mean all, of the stops here in terms of pressure, in terms of lying, in terms of worst-case scenarios. They did everything they could to make sure that once this steam train started out of the station, it wasn't going to stop. So uh, that's a really compelling answer, and that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious then, at some point, was it that they were so indoctrinated into into that, so fearful that they couldn't pull out of it? So my, I guess my question is, you know, I, I get how people could have been pulled in in the beginning, but at what point 
do you question your decisions, question what you've been told, question, you know, when things stop making sense, why well, didn't I can they? Give you, yeah. I can give you just a, an anecdotal example that you're not going to be able to confirm, but I can only tell you that I would swear on the lives of my children that this is true. Um, number one, I, I, I have an ex-girlfriend who, as far as I can tell, took the shot to be on a set for a Star Trek series and died of brain cancer about six to nine months later. Um, it was so fast. It pretty much just, I mean, it obviously it destroyed her family, but the way that she went and how fast it was just awful. And I know from other people who also I have several connections with people in Hollywood for whatever reason that work there as various not important jobs. And they all have reported the same thing that either on the set that they were working on in late 2020, that's before public release, or soon after in 2021, there were doctors on set. I have several testimonies of doctors bringing the vaccine to private Christmas parties in Hollywood and offering it to everyone at the party. Now, we're at a stage now where you can assume that they went to the most set and offered them the best dose of Moderna, the, the, the government dose, the government purity, the government batch. And now that we know what we know from Denmark, seems to have confirmed this stuff that was already reported almost a year ago by, by a guy named Partikofer, um, with uh, this is your batch or whatever that that website was, we we kind of already guessed this a long time ago. If you have a product that you're pretty sure is going to be dangerous, one of the ways to make it look less dangerous would be to juice the doses and make some of the doses not and other the doses placebo. There's lots of different ways that they could have done this, and the government might not know. Some of the people in government might know. They might have used different strategies with different parts of the government. They might. We have no idea. All I know is that the objective wasn't to get the purest product, the safest product, uh, the most tested product in the arms that needed it. Um, there was a very different plan, and I think all of us are very, very, very familiar with what that plan was. It was to get as many shots and many arms as possible with as little resistance as possible. And quite frankly, I think if we were to be able to get into one of these secret meetings, we would find out that the target was was missed pretty drastically and they're pretty disappointed. But what, so what is it that those people who bought into all of this, those people who you said were coerced and manipulated and um, were put in a state of fear and told that this is, you know, this horrible life-threatening thing, at some point, why did they not shift their position, especially people, educated people, people, you know, scientists and doctors? What is it that you think had them not let go of that? They didn't get hurt. And they don't know anybody that got hurt yet. And it's going to take a while for this to get around. I know lots of people, and we were just doing this earlier in this discussion, that people are still just... They're not connecting. The, I have, I don't want to take too much time, but I have a parent 
used to live next door to us. We just moved to the south side of Pittsburgh, which doesn't matter. But we used to have these next door neighbors. They have kids. We used to walk to the bus every day. I was sure the mom wasn't going to give her kids the shot. And in the end, they did. And I've seen her several times since we moved away. And the last time I saw her, she was telling me about how her boys have been so sick all this year. It's like every every two weeks, one of the boys is home with headache, vomiting, or whatever. And I'm thinking, man, I mean, we used to talk every morning. You have to know I warned you about this. But at some moment, you know, you have to be empathetic. And she asked questions, I answer. But I've never explicitly said, you know, you gave your kids the shot. Because it's really hard for people to understand, if they don't want to, that something as small as, you know, what seems like a little injection can be so dangerous. And I'm just going to finish with this. I think by the end of the year, my main goal is to convince everybody that intramuscular injection for the purpose of immunization we're going to look back and realize that it was never a good idea and it probably never really worked that well, even in the best case scenarios. I think we're going to be ashamed of ourselves. And if we end up using immunization as a tool in the future, we're going to be using inhaled immunizations or we're going to be using immunizations that are applied to the skin in some way. There's not going to be intramuscular injection of immunization in the next five years. It'll be gone. That's my prediction. Over. Thank you for that. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear from Matthew on the same question. Maybe just a, a closing comment, because I've got to step step out and, and, and start teaching uh, momentarily here. But um, I was thinking that this is maybe no, it's certainly an oversimplification. But um, if we look at everything from the COVID shots to the currency, the question of shifting to digital currency to the carbon footprint for you know the climate crisis um, to the SOGI one two three uh, curriculum that's moving across Canada and, and the way it uh, intervenes in parental rights. Um, again and again, we see a sort of stripping away of rights and freedoms and individual control. And uh, and again and again, we see the consolidation of of power and, and wealth and and control in the, in corporate hands. And so, I think that one way to look at this that's very simple is that that this is kind of what we're seeing is is um, a hostile takeover of um, developed democracies around the world by uh, by a corporate elite, and that. In a way, we're dealing with with a, an ideology of market triumphalism. Now, for the market triumphalist, you, you know, the market triumphalist isn't particularly concerned about achieving anything like um, equality of social outcome. It doesn't matter if whether um, the poor part of the population has access to health care or, or good education. Um, you know. They're going to they're going to lead with the market, and they want the market to be as Darwinian as possible. Um, and the outcome for them is is always fine because the market triumphs. So you end up with very big fish, um, BlackRock and Vanguard. And so you might say, well, this is fine because what public private partnerships have shown us 
is that the private sector does everything better than the public sector. But that's not actually true. What's happened is the private sector has undermined, systematically undermined the public sector to hamper its proper functioning and to prepare it for hostile takeover. And why this matters on the ground level, where we all live and where we have our relationships and our families, why this matters is that, that actually market triumphalism translates directly into a society that normalizes relations of domination and subordination. And, and that's, the, that's the part about the rights and freedoms, the clawing away of rights and freedoms, getting to the point where, where it's okay to identify groups that are speaking out, that are holding unacceptable views, whether they're the unvaccinated or whether they're, they're protesters honking horns, God forbid. But we get to the point where the majority of the population says, yes, we hate them too. And, you know, we think they should be punished. And the sooner and the stronger, the better. And, and as I, kind of, I remember Avi Lewis, of all people, saying, you know, complaining that the Ottawa police was, was wasting time considering the civil rights of these people, of the, the truckers. I may be misremembering that, but, but I was just shocked because, um, because I remember, you know, watching Avi Lewis uh, discuss political matters a decade or, or more ago, and, and he, was, he seemed like a compassionate and uh, sharp mind. Anyway, that's, that's what I want to say, that, that this market triumphalism, that's the main problem. And it's going to translate into a sort of catastrophic uh, societal reality if we don't do everything we can to stop it. And that means cooperating, collaborating, and establishing ethical guidelines for civil discourse that, that, uphold, uh, that uphold all the standards we want, to, we want to live by. And that goes back to what uh, Zoran was saying, that, you know, okay, you've got these politicians and these judges who feel comfortable doing away with the Constitution, but it's up to the public, if need be, to take to the street to say, no, it's absolutely, that's absolutely not acceptable. There are values that we share, and they're worth protecting, and we won't allow you to abuse the values or, you know, any of these uh, minority groups anymore. Okay, thanks. Thank you for that. Matthew, um, if uh, if the uh, hosts don't mind, I'd like to talk about this is Canada. Oh, you've got the floor, Michelle. <laughs> it's, it's it's you. Yep. <laughs> okay. So it just seems like a a perfect segue. You know, uh, I mean, w- w- taking to the streets and the public demanding. So. For those of you who have not heard, the NCI has launched a campaign called This is Canada for the month of July, for the summer. And it was actually, the idea came out of uh, one of our Twitter spaces. Somebody was listening and shared that she had printed off some NCI, like little pieces of paper, like kind of like business cards that had the NCI website. And she was in a local coffee shop and she was just handing them out. And we were so moved by this, by this simple, powerful action, not just powerful in that 
you know, this this citizen is going out and spreading this word about the NCI, but what it took for her as someone who sees herself as quiet and kind of on the shy side, you know, not outspoken, more of an introvert, to go out and step over her fear to do that was so moving. And so this campaign has been created. There's a video that we've posted. You can go to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca slash testimony, and you'll see this is Canada. And there's a link to the documents. And what we're asking people to do is to go and print out this document. It is a flyer that we're asking people to take to the streets, to take to your neighborhood or another neighborhood and distribute in the mailboxes of your neighbors. And the flyer simply asks people to go to the website and watch three pieces of testimony, any testimony they find compelling that they're drawn to, because we are betting that when people watch three pieces of testimony, that they will be hooked, that they will learn something new. Because I'm sure, as everybody here knows, there's just so much that's interesting and compelling and informative. And even, you know, though I've been writing a blog about COVID for two years before the NCI started, I learned so much in these testimonies. And so on this piece of, on this flyer, it's asking people to watch three pieces of testimony and then to watch a whole day. Because as Sean said at almost every set of hearings, you can't watch a whole day of testimony and not be changed. And that's what this is going to take, this taking to the streets. It's going to require all of us to change, to transform ourselves, to go beyond what it is we are already comfortable with. So we're asking people to print out 156 copies, and there are two-to-a-page versions, if you want to do that, for Canada's 156th birthday. And then to take, when when you're out there distributing these in mailboxes, to take a picture of yourself doing it and to post it online with the hashtag, this is Canada, because this is Canada. And, you know, I, I, you know, I loved Don's question earlier about, okay, is this Canada? Is this what Canada is? There's a lot of versions of what Canada is right now. And what the NCI showed us is that we can create what it's going to be. We can create a way of practicing democracy. Because for me, that's the biggest outcome of the NCI is that we have invented a new form of democracy, a way for citizens just say, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to, we're going to put on these hearings. We're going to hear from the experts. We're going to hear the voices of Canadians that have been silenced. So my request is that everybody who is in this Twitter space now um, agree to go and do that. Just today, I went to Staples and I printed out my 156 copies and I'm going to be doing it as well. So I am asking that you do that. And if you find it too uncomfortable in your own neighborhood, go to another neighborhood. Just find a neighborhood. And if you have a conversation or if you share the experience of what it was like, do that. You know, it's, I think as well as awakening our friends and neighbors, it's also going to awaken something in ourselves, you know, to do that extra step to actually, you know, put, put, take to the streets, as Matthew said. So that's what I wanted to share.
and I'm in Vancouver, so I'm going to need about a hundred thousand of those flyers, um, <laughs> and 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 several teams of people. So if you have any, yeah, if the, if that's on you, it's uh, uh, we're just, we're heading into almost two hours here. So if you haven't done so already, um, absolutely kindly just retweet our little space here. Um, there's a lot of there's a, the I posted the link to the printable resources on the. National Citizen Inquiry page where you can download those flyers and um, print them out. And there's a couple of different formats there. Um, and I haven't, I myself, I haven't gone out to do it, but I will. And I would hope that everyone takes that um, and gets out on the street and gets out into the world to do it because I think that that's almost what it takes. No, I think I think that's that is what it's going to take. And I also just want to add turn that the tide. Yeah, the, the the flyers are being um, created in French um, and a French-English version for Montreal in particular. So that is also on its way. That's important. Is I also Chuck... noticed... Sorry, yeah, is sorry Chuck... we wanted to mention that Chess is down there. <laughs> is, Chess, is Chess somewhere? Where's Chess? Yeah, we've been trying to get Chess Crosby to speak. It would be great, Chess, if you could come up and say a couple of words, possibly give us some closing remarks <laughs> for the space, um, oh, if you have any in mind. Yeah, so um, Dawn, can you tell Chess, does he have to do anything to do that? Can you hear me? There we go. There we is. can, Chess. No, I've listened with the greatest of interest uh, to all the people offering their insights. Um, what I could do right now is simply come back to uh, Dr. Encore's testimony uh, recently, <clears throat> the third time he testified, and I just find it so rich. And he summarizes and perhaps goes in some ways beyond his expertise. But he's the most radical witness we've heard from. And the starting point for him is there was no viral pandemic. That's the most basic insight that we could all absorb. This was all a con job from the very beginning. The most incredible con job that the world has seen or experienced. And I just want to thank everyone who's spoken for giving their own uh, experience of that, uh, whether expert or uh, in, from their own uh, unique perspective. And um, I'm moved to hear everyone speak to it. But the bottom line for me is the whole thing was a fake. I would actually, I would actually follow up, um, Chess, if I could. Um, in terms of because in, in terms of it's it's very you know you say it so matter of factly right um yet we've seen testimony after testimony and you know just in our own anecdotal experience in in life how people are just unwilling to see that reality they're not willing to look past you know the falsehood and see the reality and break through to see that the emperor has no clothes you know and 
from your perspective, I mean, you have a, you have an eight, you, you have a mature perspective, you know? And so I think it, I think that gives you some, uh, you know, gives you some uh, perspective, you know, like in terms of I've, I've been around long enough to know a con job when I see one. Right. Uh, yeah. But the extent and breadth of this is so overwhelming that, um, I still feel astounded and at sea in contemplating how top to bottom this was. And yet we have family members and friends and associates who are still totally hook, line, and sinker bought into the whole set of lies. Um I don't know if anything quite like this has ever happened in the history of the world. I, I'd like to add to that if it's okay. Um, when I started screaming, it's not real, which didn't take me long. I had the gut feeling from day one because it felt like an ad rollout, right? Which always tells me that, you know, they're trying to get you to think a certain way. But whether the virus existed or not, because there's all this chit chat about Wuhan and where it came from and everything else. I think the part that I was screaming about is it's not real was the reaction they were asking us to have. And from that perspective, yeah, I think this is the biggest snow job that's ever happened ever. And specifically on Western nations, that's something to consider as well. Well, they haven't had the weapons to unleash uh, the psychological warfare that they've unleashed until comparatively recently, and they did so in such a coordinated way that it took most of the population over, including including learned professions, and we're still trying to recover from that. It, the bright light on the horizon is that I think a lot of people despite the fact there are still people who are believers in the whole pandemic narrative, there are many, many who aren't. I don't know if that's the majority yet, but it's a very strong, uh, substantial number of people. And if and when they unleash something similar again, they're not going to buy into it. So that's that's the good news. And uh, the work of the My National basic... Citizens Inquiry has helped to has helped us cement that skepticism. Yeah, I think I think it's maybe not so much skepticism, although it, it should be, but it's it's reality, right? Like a reality check. Like why did you think that way? Why did you make your neighbors feel this way? Why did you consider that? Why did you do that? Right. And there's a lot of people that are kind of eating crow on that. They're staying silent, but there's obvious signs that people are not uh, proud of themselves and maybe as horrible as that is to say it's sort of a general feeling of guilt amongst the population um but they're not gonna admit it yet and that's you know that could be 20 years down the road that could be generations from now it could be never it could just sort of become common knowledge and everybody nods and smiles and carries on or so, there, there could be a moment where the dam breaks and you know the pendulum shifts very substantially in the other yeah. direction that can happen as well. I'm I'm uh, keeping an eye on the court system because there's a few interesting cases that have come up, and there's been interesting cases throughout the last three years. Um, but the court system is is <clears throat> kind of maybe turning their head the other way, uh, 
and looking at the other side a little bit more than they were. And, and there's a few big ones coming up. So depending on outcome of those, um, you know, maybe it'll give people courage to go after these little bureaucracies that have caused these problems in their lives. And maybe it will give people courage to speak up and say, yeah, you know what, that that's correct. Those people are right and they should have gone through court and they should have been, um, you know, exonerated for whatever behaviors were so bad or they should they should be compensated for whatever was done to them because of this. And I think that that's kind of a really interesting I mean, it's like, what, five years down the road, maybe, but because our courts take so long. But in a general sense, um, maybe we'll see some maybe we'll see something restored there. I don't know. I I just wanted to add one more comment, which is that I think the opportunity of all of this and just to add on to what Chess said is that many of us have awoken to our civic duty, to our responsibility. You know, we've spent many years talking about rights, but not a lot about responsibility. And if anything good can come out of this, I think it's that we are learning to take responsibility for the system that we've created. I'm going to, I'm going to step because in. Because we live in such a, such a great country. Sorry. Yeah. No, just thinking we're getting, uh, we're getting close to almost needing to wrap up. So I'm wondering, Laura, if you want to finish your thoughts and, and I'm just going to sure, announce. I just think we've lived in such a great country. <laughs> so, um, so everyone, uh, if you guys, you see, we've got that uh, at the top, the National Citizens Inquiry. We've got a roundtable tomorrow. We've got a bunch of uh, Bruce Party, James Kitchen, Leighton Gray, myself. And it's just going to be a really interesting conversation. And um, so, and Tess, I'm going to give you a word. But uh, before I do that, just on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, thank all of you for participating. It's just a, a joy for us to have these conversations. I I don't know best of you, but I was glued. <laughs> so, so I want to thank all the speakers who came and participated. I, I think everyone on the call will say that you guys just totally fascinated us with the things that you had to say. And so, on that note, Chess, do you want to just say some parting words, and we'll we'll close up. Well, thank you, Sean. I just want to say that um, these kinds of spaces and the opportunity given to people to share their experiences and to be part of a community of truth is the most valuable thing we've been able to accomplish. Well said. So we'll uh, we'll sign sign off. So Don, I'll just pass it over to you. Thanks, everybody. Um, Garrett, any any parting words? Um, we mentioned also that this is the first time we've uh, live streamed this Twitter space and Rumble. So this will be available to share out to a wider audience in the future. It would be great to listen to again, I know. And um, Garrett, if you have anything left you want to close out on? No final words, but hopefully, you know, we get a lot of people tuning into tomorrow's uh, roundtable because it's going to be such a, an, an impactful conversation. So I'm looking forward to hearing what everyone has to say tomorrow. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this broadcast of the National Citizens Inquiry. It's so important to get the testimonies of Canadians out there. So please share on all your channels 
and invite your friends and family to listen in. As always, you can head over to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility. From the National Citizens Inquiry, thank you. The world is watching.